Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhassa Sorry about that. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo sadanto suche doye olahudi san miao san putoshi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. It's the 15th of August and we're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Sorry for that audio spike a minute ago. It's my fault. I didn't have my microphone on. Oh, boy, I wish there was a way to prevent that in the future. Hmm. That's human error, not mechanical error. Um, let's begin our sutra lecture by reciting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You'll find it on the front cover of your text. Namo to folks who are joining us online from wherever you are. We're uh, few tonight because 
Tomorrow is a big day for Berkeley Monastery. We begin our uh, annual Oregon Mountain Retreat. And more than half of the folks who are going have already left and they're on the road or else they've already arrived. And we're, we're the last group to depart and we're leaving tomorrow at 6 a.m. So tonight, in order to uh, facilitate all the traveling that's going on, we're going to stop at 9 tonight. Uh, so just to let you know. So we'll do, the, we'll do our transference uh, a little after 8.30 and then talk about what's coming up, do some music, uh, and end up at 9 o'clock. So please turn now in your sutra to page 64 and 65. We stopped last week on Rushi uh, Guangda, which is the third line on the last paragraph. So if you go to the bottom paragraph and go down to the third line, we're going to start tonight with Ar Chu Fan Pu, that line. And the English is on the right hand side, ordinary beings on the other hand. Okay, let's let's start. We'll do the Chinese first. Arju Fanfu Shindo Shijin Wuming Fu Yi Fu Yi Li Chao Man Gao Chuang Ru Ku Ai Wang I'm sorry, my mistake. Ru Ku Ai Wang Zhong Xing Chan Kuang Cholin Bunang Zi Chu Xin Yu Jianji Jianji Boy, I'm making a lot of mistakes. Let's try that again. Xin Yu Qianji Xiang Ying Bu She Hang Zhao Zhu Chu Show Sheng Yinyuan Tan Hui Yu Chi Chi Ju Ye Ye Zeng Zhang Yi Fen Hen Feng Chui Xin Shi Huo Chi Ran Bu Xi Fan so zuo ye Fan so zuo Let's try that again. Xiang Xu Qi Xin Yi Shi Zhongzi. All right, there we go. That's a difficult passage to go. Okay, let's look over to page 65. Ordinary beings, on the other hand, 
allow their thoughts to go wrong. They're covered by the film of ignorance. They raise the banner of pride and arrogance. They're trapped by a net of craving and travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until they can no longer extricate themselves. Their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy which they never abandon. They constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. Their greed, hatred, and stupidity create karma which increases by day and night. The winds of hatred and resentment fan the fire of mind consciousness whose blaze never ceases. All the karma they create is tied to inversion. The torrents of desire, existence, ignorance and views ceaselessly stir up the seeds of mind consciousness. All right. We're back on page 64. This section is a little shocking if you're not used to how the sutras work. So let's uh, jump in and, and interpret it so that we can see, see it the way the sutras mean it. Last week, the... Um, the Bodhisattva who is explaining this text, the awakened being who is explaining this text, said that the Buddha Dharma is profound, quiet, still, tranquil, empty, free of marks, free of wanting, undefiled, limitless, vast and great. So that's a long list of superlatives. The Bodhisattva says the Buddha Dharma is very... Uh, special in the world and here it is he's teaching it and he says here it is please see it the way it is says the bodhisattva and now tonight he's flipping it over he says the bodhisattva the, the buddha dharma is really wonderful and yet ordinary beings the key word here is fanfu arju fanfu and that's he's talking about us and everybody who is not yet awake, everybody who is not yet a sage, and that's a technical term, that means somebody who's put an end to birth and death and all the suffering of existence, all of the confusion. Let's not use the word suffering, that sounds really not specific. Let's just talk about confusion. Uh, all living beings who can still be upset when things don't go their way. All living beings who can still be delighted when things work out so that you lose perspective. Um, all of us who get up on the wrong side of the bed some mornings. Those are all ordinary beings. Fan Fu is the phrase uh, in Chinese. And so that includes me for sure. Um, a sage is somebody who never has a bad day. And it's not just little Mary Sunshine, you know. I'm so happy. 
It's not that kind of you know artificial paste a smile on Walt Disney, Mary Poppins kind of happiness. It's somebody who genuinely looks at a situation that other people would find unbearable and this person is, yeah, that's possible. I, I can accept that. And when things are wonderful, sublime and perfect, they go, yeah, that's possible. I can accept that. But it's not real. It's not ultimate. This is a sage, somebody who um, sees past the surface of things to the ultimate point. It's not a pose. It's not a strategy. It's real. That person has no more troubles in their mind, in their life. So that doesn't describe me. Um, And I'm saying this word ordinary beings here is actually a technical term. It's a description of somebody, very much the way you'd say um, somebody who... mm, It's as much a technical term as mammal, right? Anybody here born from an egg? No, we didn't leave any shell behind when we came out, right? We all came from mom, from mother, so we're mammals. Fanfu, ordinary being, is very much a technical term, just like that. Sage is somebody who has gone beyond womb birth. That's an interesting concept, I know. Um, so, ordinary beings here is also referring to not only um, men, also women, also mm, beings with fur on their bodies, beings with fins on scales on their bodies, beings with feathers on their bodies, creatures that are invisible to live in the air, like microbes or bacteria, all those beings are still considered panfu. So it's a big, broad view. And it's 99.8% of creatures that, that are born and die, then there's that last little bit of beings who are sages. And <coughs> those are beings who see the Buddha Dharma the way it is. Tonight, our Bodhisattva is saying, ordinary people do what? The traditional pattern in our sutra is first sentence is general, sentence afterwards are the details. So our first general sentence is Xin Duo Xie Jin. Ordinary people let their thoughts go wrong. The literal translation of that Duo Xie Jin to fall, Xie means crooked, means thoughts that don't connect to the nature. Jin is points of view. So ordinary people, thoughts, what would you say? Um, The same character we translate in our other translations as, uh, what do we say? Uh, Deviant views. That's a Matthew's dictionary Translation, Xiejian means wrong ways of seeing. A deviant view is not a good translation, and we've been doing that in our translations for a long time. Better to say thoughts go wrong. What, is, um, what would it mean to have your thoughts go wrong? Um, to get stuck on a thought is to have your thoughts go wrong. To get um, hung up, that's, that's our... Ordinary, everyday English word. Oh, he's got a hang-up. She's just, she won't let that go. She's stuck. She's um, biased. Okay, prejudiced is a hang-up. It means that 
we don't let the thoughts go back where they came from. That would be a shijin. One of the, the real contributions of Buddhist meditation to, to the West is um, the contribution of vipassana meditation. That's this uh, technique that's only been around for hmm, 20, 30 years as a thing that people teach. Spirit Rock does vipassana. If you go to the 10-day vipassana retreats of Goenka, you know what this is. What is that contribution? They say, you sit, you wait three days for your mind to clear. That's how long it usually takes. And by the fourth day, they say, now we begin vipassana. You will notice that your thoughts are rising and falling. You will notice this. If you pay attention, your thoughts are rising and they're falling. And then they give you the key line. They say, everything that rises in the mind ceases in the mind. Everything that stirs up in the mind that you can watch happen, if you're watching, you'll see that it also stops there. Everything that rises in the mind ceases in the mind. That's a real contribution because it's based on a principle that thoughts are temporary. There's a list in Buddhism that's called the Si Nian Chu, the four places to pay attention. And one of them is Xin Wu Chang. Thoughts don't last. Thoughts are transient. They move. Xin Wu Chang. Thoughts move. They come and they go. And the Vipassana technique puts that into a practice so you can sit there and go, well, I saw that. You know, I was bored about a minute ago and then my legs started to hurt and the boredom went away because I was paying attention to the pain and I was really noticing the pain. I wasn't bored. It wasn't very pleasant, but I certainly wasn't bored. I was actively experiencing my legs on fire. You know, so that's nice. Boredom came and went. How interesting. Where did boredom go? Well, it was replaced by, ah, my legs are on fire. So, how interesting. You can experience that truth if you look. So, my point of illustrating, let their thoughts go wrong. Allow their thoughts to go wrong. Which is to say, when we get hang-ups, when we get stuck on a point of view, it's because we let ourselves. We let ourselves. Um, here's another example of a wrong view. When I grew up, I grew up in a very, very middle, middle, middle American, middle class neighborhood in Toledo, Ohio, which is Midwest. We had 50 foot lots and our houses were on, everybody did. And everything was the same in that neighborhood. It was in Toledo. Toledo's a rapidly fading industrial town on Lake Erie near Detroit. And what I, what I learned growing up was that you could look at these houses that were so much the same. Some were two-story, some were bungalows, some were apartments, but it was mostly one-story houses. What I learned was 
there are differences between Jewish families and Catholic families. And we were Methodists, Protestants. And I learned that you had to know who was who. Because Jewish families and Protestant families and Catholic families were different. I was friends with the Jewish families. But I wasn't allowed to play with the Catholic kids. Toledo, Ohio, right? Why? That's called a prejudice. It took me years to grow up and make friends with Catholics before I learned that Catholics were actually okay. Right? Because that was the view. But I sure knew who was who. And my friends were Jewish because they were my friends who I played chess with and music and basketball and ping pong and interesting things that were not just baseball, basketball, football that I played with all my other friends. So that was a prejudice that I had learned just by growing up. And I had to change my mind later when I discovered, oh, you know what, that's not true. It's really not true that these kids are in any way different than those kids and I should be careful about it. That's called a wrong thought. Thoughts that go wrong. That's a xie jin, a crooked view. So, here's the way I think of it now. The opposite of letting your thoughts go wrong is allowing your thoughts to go right. How do thoughts go right? The opposite of xie in Chinese is zheng. What is the right letting your thoughts go right? It means whatever rises in the mind ceases in the mind. Thoughts rise and they fall. Why? Xin wu chang. Thoughts are transient. They don't last. Thoughts pass through. They really do pass through if you let them. But we are taught otherwise. We are taught otherwise. What would be uh, allowing your thoughts to go wrong? Being told, if you're a young girl at some point, that you are too, fill in the blank, too skinny, too fat, too ugly, too stupid, too loud, too soft. All the things that we learn from somewhere, from our parents or from advertising or from magazines, that we don't match whatever, the standard that somebody sets up. Is that true that we are too? No, it's not true. But we learn that, right? We learn views of ourselves that we hang on to. Whatever we're taught by the adults, the adults must know, right? They're smart, they're big. They know, right? And they tell us these things. Not true. In fact, all those labels are the senses chasing themselves. Chasing an echo of words that have no place in reality that they stick anywhere. What does fat mean? Totally, totally culturally ambiguous. Right? What does skinny mean? Compared to what? Right? It's what does old mean? You're too old. Well, 
before the 20th century, back in the 1800s, the average life expectancy in the United States was about 49. Right? People only started living into their 50s on the average after 1900. Isn't that interesting? So now the average is 80-something, right? It's late 70s. It's gone up so much. What does old mean? It's all relative. And yet we hear these things, these labels. Oh, you're too... You can't do science. You're a girl. Girls don't do science, right? Even to the point where college guidance counselors would send girls away from science as they were advised what to try when they applied for university. Right? What a crippling, ignorant perspective. Tell that to the Chinese. Right? Girls can't be doctors. Well, in China, you know, that doesn't work. Most medical professionals are female. So, anyway, culturally determined, really relative. And yet, we cling to these ideas growing up. So, every time you look in the mirror, you go, oh, no, I just look just the way they tell me I do. It's you're looking at a reflection of a perception that your eye is interpreting based on nothing, based on changing standards. So, the Buddha is saying, here the Bodhisattva is saying, that living beings let our... Th- we allow... Check that word. We allow our thoughts to go wrong. What would be proper? What are we really? The ultimate answer is... None of the above. We are earth, air, fire, water coming together very briefly in this form looking at a reflection of a reflection. Our eyes are just vessels that our karma, more like to say our prejudices, shoot out, read back, and then assign a value to good, better, Best, off the dial, good, not so good, crummy, really bad, horrible, off the dial. And those are labels that we add to a perception of a perception based on what? Our eyes are not to blame. The mirror is not to blame. Our minds are to blame for allowing ourselves to fall right? to, to cling to these ideas. So that's how do we get proper? What is how do we get our th- let our thoughts go right by looking past the surface with wisdom, and then getting a second opinion. Here's a second opinion of who we really are and how we should really look, think, study, see ourselves in the mirror, feel about ourselves. Right, So that's one reason to, to listen to the sutras, so we can really get a different perspective of who is this, ultimately? Who am I? All right. So, living beings, ordinary beings, let our thoughts go wrong. We allow our thoughts to cling to these stereotypes, prejudices, bias, superficial perceptions that are often determined by what? By industry that want to sell us products, often. Often our perceptions of who we really are come from the marketplace, which stands to profit by me thinking that I really need 
to change my hair color. I really need to make my teeth whiter. I really need to, mm, you know, look a little thinner, a little fatter, etc., etc., etc. We are covered by a film of ignorance. Wu Ming Fu Fu Yi. Wu Ming Fu Yi. Here, Fu Yi are verbs. Wu Ming is a really interesting word. It means lack of light. Not not clear. No light. Wu Ming Fu Yi. Lack of light covers us. Okay? What if we had light? What if it was Yo Ming Po Yi? Or Guang Ming Po Yi? Bright light breaks through the, the outside to the heart of it. That would be seeing ourselves clearly. Right? This is Wu Ming, lack of light. And Wu Ming is here is a, is a general term that the Buddha is using not because he wants us to, again to feel bad about ourselves or he's not scolding us, saying you ordinary beings are covered over by a film of ignorance. This is really compassion. The Buddha here, speaking through the Bodhisattva, let's say the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is talking like a doctor. He's talking like a doctor. A doctor doesn't say, huh, you're sick. You're really sick. Hmm. Too bad for you. Nah, the doctor says, oh, oh, you have, based on my diagnosis, an imbalance which is resulting in these symptoms, which is making you very uncomfortable and could threaten your life if you don't correct it. The doctor speaking dispassionately without wanting to engage your feelings, but he's saying, don't change it, you could die. So you take the doctor's opinion seriously because he's not engaging his feelings. Neither is the Buddha engaging his feelings about us. He's saying ordinary beings are in the dark. We're in the dark because why? We don't see the truth about what's really going on in our lives. The other point, the other important thing is that the Buddha was an ordinary being up until the 48th day and the last couple minutes before he woke up, before he entered samadhi that night, saw a bright star and broke through ignorance. They say, poor Wuming. He shattered this film of ignorance over his vision his true seeing of who he really was. Everything was different in that, that moment, that awareness. So, ignorance covers us over. Li, jiao man, gao chuang. We, the verb is li, to set up a chuang, banner, like a flag. Um, this is uh, here in our Buddha hall at the Berkeley Monastery. We don't have any we don't have any flags. City of 10,000 Buddhas is fun to, to use this vocabulary because in the Buddha hall there, there are lots of flags and banners and streamers and there's some that go horizontal and some that go vertical and some that are like canopies and there's lots of uh, flags and pennants at City of 10,000 Buddhas. And before, um, before a world that had neon signs um, before electricity, actually, 
there would be like signs on a hotel or barber shops would have that turning pole going up. But where did you see anything like grand in front of your eyes, maybe moving in the wind? Pretty rare. Armies. If the army came through, they'd have their flags, right? Circuses. Um, the national flag, stars and stripes. If you're in America, um, the flag was something special, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, etc. You know, you put your hand over your heart and say, Oh, Canada, my home and native land. Should I continue? No, I. Buddha, keep our land glorious and free. Oh, Canada, we stand on guard for thee. We changed it to Buddha. So when we were in, in uh, Gold Buddha in Vancouver. So when you see a flag, you think right away of something bigger, some big identity. National flag or pennants for your favorite sports teams, the Detroit Tigers. Mmm, have a flag, and the Oakland Raiders have a flag, and it's a pirate, right? So, flags, when you saw one in the past, that was like the most obvious like sim symbol of something bigger. Nowadays, with electricity, my goodness, we can turn the night into day, we can uh, create all kinds of... And we're so used to looking at flickering things on the tube, that banners and pennants are kind of they've kind of gone away, um, but still they can move you. When you see a circus come into town, or a, uh, the Boy Scouts marching by, or the army, oh, the flags and the banners are something special. So here it says they set up the banner of the tall banner of Jiao Man, arrogance, arrogance. Pride. And in every religious text I've ever heard of, pride is something you point to and say, big mistake. Pride is a sin in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And the, uh, the Buddha called pride one of the basic afflictions, meaning one of the fundamental ways that we go wrong with our mind is when we get proud. Why is that so? <coughs> Why did uh, the prophets of the Bible and the uh, ancient sages of India and the Buddha all say that pride is a sin, arrogance and pride? It's because it's simply not true. It's a view. It's a wrong way of seeing who I am that if I act on it, gets me in lots of trouble. Pride is to say, I'm bigger. I count more. This, this unit is really important. So I can look down on you who's not important as I am or you, that group, um, 
that team, that country, people, that color, that religion, we can look down on them. Just like I was taught as a kid to know who, were, who was Jewish, who was Catholic, who was Protestant, etc. That's to go wrong because there's nothing in any person that, that's, that follows those labels. I'm better compared to who? Because I got a higher test score? Because I can run faster? Because I inherited money from my ancestors? Because I belong to that club? What in the world makes this person truly better than something else? Some, someone else? You can't find it. All those labels come and go. They don't correspond to anything in the human body that is innately better. Here's one of the most obvious examples. Um, in China, if you ate white rice, polished rice, you were probably wealthy. If you ate polished rice, probably that meant that your family came from the educated class. If you didn't eat polished rice, if you ate like what we now call brown rice or unpolished rice, pretty sure you worked on the land. You were in the agrarian occupations. Those are the words we would use now. You were a farmer. Why? Because you couldn't afford to have the husk knocked off your rice. So it didn't taste as elegant as refined white rice. But guess what? Unpolished rice is way healthier for you, way better for you. So the fancy classes who can eat polished rice tend to have poorer health than those poor old peasants who eat normal, ordinary, unpolished rice. So who's better? Right? Perception. Right? Better in what regard? Better because you have your teeth are falling out because you're not chewing on the brown rice husk? Better says who? Not the doctor, not your long life, not your actuarial tables that give you long life because you're eating healthier food. It's all perception. So the Buddha said, arrogance is going to get you in trouble because it's just not true. It's not based on anything real. It's based on a perception. Likewise, low self-esteem. I'm not as good as so-and-so is also just a label. There's nothing fundamentally in any one of us that makes us better or worse than anybody else. If you don't believe it, Wait until it comes time to leave the body. And then we're really all the same. Really, really. The great leveler is impermanence. When we die, it's really the same. Really all the same. We die. So, and then come back again to try it out one more time with another set of body and mind. And if we don't correct it, we just come back and become arrogant again. Or low self-esteem. So, Think about that. Mm, those ideas come into our lives really early. 
if we have brothers and sisters, often the older brother or the older sister is really interested in keeping the young ones under their thumb. So they are very interested in letting us know that we're just totally inferior to them because they're born first and they, you know, have all the, they go first in everything. So it's hard to really level that out. Um, if, uh, if our families are not wealthy, it's difficult to get the advantages of education that come so easily to people who have money. Right? So it's difficult to get to the wisdom of the Buddha who says, no, fundamentally, wealthy people have the suffering of wealthy people. People who are poor have the suffering of poor people. It's all, in the end, comes down to whatever flavor of suffering, discomfort, trouble that you get. It's not a question of more or less. Everybody has trouble until you transform it using the Dharma. Right? Rich people have huge affliction. Money brings with it huge trouble. Poverty brings with it huge trouble. So what do we do? We say, ah, this is called having a body, having a mind, having karma. Wouldn't it be nice if I could cultivate wisdom? So no matter whether I have money or don't have money, my mind has wisdom and compassion. I can look right through the externals, cultivate virtue, cultivate blessings, learn to benefit people and make my days peaceful and happy. Right? That's what we hear the Buddha telling us. And it's so nice to get to that because it takes all of that, all those wrong views and just tosses them to one side. Who says I'm inferior because? Who says I'm better because? All the stories I've been told growing up. Right? Who says? In the end, what works is hard work. Doing proper things. Training, learning how to use tools. Learning how to be polite to people. Learning how to get along when somebody gets in your face without catching fire. What useful skills those are. Right? Gets you through. Learning how to get along with a spouse who you didn't really know when you got married. And now after three years you realize, who is this person across the breakfast table? I have to learn to get along with that person. Learning how to do it. Ah, here's a real Dharma friend. Here's somebody who supports me, who I can support. How wonderful that is. So the Buddha says, that's what matters. Not what label sticks to this body because of other people's vision of me. So that is not setting up the banner of arrogance the tall banner of arrogance. Ru ke ai wang zhong. They are trapped by a net of craving. Here's another one. Man, 
Look at these images the Buddha is using. He's using the image of um, film of ignorance, banner of pride, net of craving. And when was the last time you were caught in a net? You say, well, let's see, uh, Fourth of July picnic, I ran into the family volleyball net because I wasn't watching where I was going and I was running with my plate of potato salad and I got caught right at the neck by the volleyball net. Okay, or you tripped over the tennis net last time you were playing tennis. Um, other than that, anybody grow up in a fishing family? Anybody grow up as fishermen? Uh, maybe at Girdelli Square, Fisherman's Wharf, or in Half Moon Bay? Probably not, right? So when did you run into a net? Not very much. In the past, nets were things that hunters and trappers used. If you were trapping birds, you used a net. If you were, trap, if you were netting fish, you'd use a net to, to fish. But that requires water and the coast or a lake. If you grew up in inland, you never saw a net, right? In the Buddhist time, nets were very useful tools. If you were uh, living as a, a hunter or a fisher person, trying to get your, trying to get get through the days that way. So here, our images are dated. These are images that don't speak to us as they might have in a agrarian world. Now we live in cities and nets. When do you see a net? You don't really. There's a net right now covering the new building on University and Shad University of Martin Luther King. They're putting in this new three-story building. What's the net there? The net is there to keep the bricks from falling onto passers-by, right? It's this OSHA. It's a safety net, keeping the uh, the stuff from falling on our heads. But that's about the only net we see. Here, uh, the Buddha is saying we get trapped by a net of craving. Uh, when did I see a net? Oh, I know. I saw a net in the latest Jet Li film. Right? He's martial arts film. Uh, one of the martial artists has a net for one of his, his weapons. Right? And the only way you can avoid the net is if you have a, what's called a, a uh, fu, uh, like a, 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 a pole, uh, like a, what is it, a halberd, an axe. You can stick the halberd up and the net can't come down and trap you because it's caught by the, the spear on a pole. That's one thing you'll learn if you watch Jet Li martial arts films, is how to avoid getting netted by the enemy. So, Aren't you glad I passed that Dharma on to you tonight? When you go home tonight, if you've been struggling, you can stick your spear up and it'll catch on the spear. What's that? What do you use it for? Get them out, all right. So, Tam knows about nets. You can buy one by dollar. So, it's a compassion net, in fact. It's there. there you go. You don't have to kill. Okay. Tam uses a net uh, for catching spiders and bugs and then letting them go outside. All right, there we go. There's a contemporary use of a, of a uh, traditional object. So, the point I'm making here is that uh, the Buddha Sutras come from a very natural world um, that's pretty much 
agrarian. These images are based on nature. Now, living in downtown Berkeley, we don't see nets very much unless you, like Tam, are using it to compassionately rescue living beings. So, the thing about nets, what do they do? They trap you. If you get netted, you can't move. Just, you know, that's why they're effective, is they cover you and hamper your movements, and you have to get cut out of a net if you get trapped in one. So, um, the net of craving. I wang. It's an analogy, right? I is thirst. Thirsty. I love. Thirsty love. In other words, craving. The Buddha is saying that insatiable craving catches us like a net. Um, has anybody seen flypaper? Flypaper is pretty much gone these days. But if you go into the south, uh, if you go to rural places, there. I remember uh, I had a friend who lived in Sheffield, Alabama. Sheffield, Muscle Shoals, and Tuscumbia. They're called the Tri-Cities, the northern, northwestern corner of Alabama. And Sheffield is rural Alabama. And she took me into a, 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 a drugstore. And drugstores sold drugs, and it was also where the uh, soda fountain was. And I remember going in, and over the cash register, where the, the soda jerk, they used to call the soda jerk, and the druggist and would stand to ring up the, the, the purchases. And a lot of flies down there. And so they had this roll of fly paper hanging from the ceiling. And let me tell you how basic fly paper is. Right? What is it? Think of a roll of film. All these analogies we can't use anymore. Nobody has film for their cameras anymore, right? It's all digital. So in the past, we had a roll of film. Do you ever unroll film that wasn't in the darkroom, right? It just comes off that spool. All the different, you know, like uh, sprockets. So it would come out like this. Flypaper was like a roll of film. You strung it out, and it was super, super sticky. And you would hang it up, and they would sell you a little hook to hang it up with. And it was sticky, and it also smelled sweet. And the flies would go and stick in it. And then they would go For the next six hours, you'd hear the poor fly Trying to get out of the fly paper. Let me go. And they would wind up dying on the fly, sticking more. The more they struggled, the stickier it got. Pretty soon, that strip of fly paper was gross beyond belief, covered with dead and dying flies stuck in the paper. And it was like, and it would just hang over your head until you decided, oh, that's gross enough. You'd throw it out, string up another one, right? Covered with. Flies that couldn't get, it was like cruel and the death of all these flies. So, anyway, that's kuai, craving. What's it like? It's not that there's anything wrong with what we crave, it's that we don't let it go. 
we cling to it. Right? We don't let it go. That's the problem with ku'ai. Thirsty love is it's stuff that we get attached to, like flies and the sticky fly paper. Can't put down the thought that what, what happens? Usually it starts with seeing something. Um, how many people saw the cash for clunkers and immediately started going tick, 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 tick? Yeah, let's see. I've had that car. Let me calculate. You know, I could. In the pre, let's see. Isn't didn't I see that Volvo was coming out with a, you know, like a a a, a, um, a, a SUV that was going to be alternate fuel? Oh, let's see. Well, Prius, yeah, but if I wait, it's supposed to be a new Prius. You know, starts the wheels turning, thinking about, boy. And then, ever since we see that, our car doesn't look the same, right? The car that we drive somehow, which before we saw the cash for clunkers option, was perfectly fine, now starts to look kind of shabby. And in our mind, we're going, yeah, yeah. We start to make a case why we really should get rid of the car that before you saw that was perfectly fine, now starts to look. You know, that truck... You know, it's just, it's past 80,000, it's in that declining cycle, maybe I should get another, you know, right away, because we saw something more beautiful. It's, the mind won't let it go. Before we had those thoughts, the truck was just a truck, the car was just a car, it wasn't good or bad. But once we get those thoughts, we cling to them and start to crave. So, that's the problem with I Wang. It's like a net, it binds us in and we can't let it go. That's the way it works. You can all fill in your own favorite, right? Michael? We have a question from uh, mm. online. Mm. Uh, they would like to ask for the antidote for uh, craving. What is the antidote for craving? Um, two responses. One is there is no antidote for craving. Because why? Desire is never satisfied. That's another one of those truisms. Desire itself is like a fire. When does fire burn out? If you have like a campfire, if you have a flickering fire, when does fire burn out? Only when you pull the wood away. Only when you pull the wood away does the fire burn itself out. What are they doing right now in Bonnie Doon? In Bonnie Doon, I had my views turned around. So I called one of my friends, who's a neighbor down in Bonnie Doon, lives there. He says, boy, he says, they're letting it go. They've sent a fire truck to every house and they're letting it go, letting it burn. Why? Because the last time it burned was 48. He said in 48 they had a huge fire. And since that time, it's just been gathering up all this underbrush and trash stuff. You know, chaparral, it's just it's like a weed. He says they're letting it burn because there's, number one, they can't get out to it. There's only like one lane dirt roads out where it's burning. Two, when all that underbrush burns away, it's a natural fire break. 
it won't burn there again for another 50 years. How interesting. I never thought of that. That in woods like that, fire is a natural thing that comes cyclically. So he's letting it burn out. They're letting it burn the, burn the fuel away since there's no property there. It's going to burn sooner or later. Better to let it burn out, then it won't burn again for another 40, 50 years. If you go in there and try to put it out with water, that all that fuel is still there. It'll burn again in September, October, or next year. So what a different way of looking at fires than I thought. Of course, if there was 100 houses lined up, they would get in there and put it out and struggle with it. But what you do is you remove the fuel from a fire. Okay, so the question online is, that's one answer, is you can't. You can't. There is no antidote to craving because desire just burns. That's its nature. Until you remove things that it thinks it wants. The other answer to what is the antidote to craving is get the thing that you think you want. Pretty soon it's going to go, oh, is that all it was? Right? Pretty soon it shows its true nature, which is, doesn't hit the spot. The nature of desired objects is, doesn't hit the spot. That guy, he looked so hot, right? He was the quarterback of the football team. Everybody wanted, he was the student council president, right? He was king of the prom and all the girls wanted to date him. And one lucky girl, usually the captain of the cheerleading squad, married him. And guess what? She discovered that he snores. He snores. And he just snores and he won't stop. And she hasn't been able to get any sleep. And she, now she wants separate bedrooms. And she realizes what she bought. There's a snoring machine, you know. And it's like, oh, okay, who knew? So it's not what you thought when it had the, the, all the glimmer and the shine of desire, right? So one antidote to desire is get the thing that you thought you wanted and you'll discover that it's not what you thought. It's, the problem is not in the thing. The satisfaction is not in the thing. The antidote to desire is contentment. Wisdom. Say, you know, what comes to me is absolutely never wrong. But I get in trouble when I think, oh, I need more. Or new. Or different. Or better. Right? Because you get it and it's, it's that desire burns on. It just finds something else. So that's the second answer. The first answer is, there is no antidote to desire. The second answer is, get the thing and look at its true nature. You'll discover it wasn't in the thing. Two teaspoonfuls of sugar in a cup of coffee makes the coffee taste sweet. Ten teaspoons of sugar in the same cup of coffee will kill you, make you really sick. It's just... You know, that's just the nature of it. Some people look at a cup of coffee. If you wanted to drink black coffee, yuck. You just spit it out, right? Other people 
can't stand sugar. Other people like cream. Other people like latte. Other people like half-calf latte, double caffeine. So desire ultimately can't be satisfied. If you pull the wood out from under, the fire will go out by itself. Okay. We um, are halfway through our analogies. We're going to stop at this point. Xing Chan Kuang Chou Bu Neng Zhu. They travel in the dense forest of flattery and can't pull themselves out. We'll um, we'll stop at that point because we have uh, things to talk about and we've got to finish by nine tonight. So we'll put put a bookmark at that point and continue next week. Let's um, let's transfer merit first and then go from there to a conversation about what's going on at the monastery. your chances of being out of tune. What you don't see when you go to a piano concert is that the piano tuner comes right before the concert. So you never have to uh, imagine if the piano tuner had to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Get in there, ting, 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 ting. So when you, uh, guitars respond to humidity mostly and temperature a little bit. And believe it or not, it's different upstairs than it is down here. Guitars are very organic and sensitive, so... so nice when it's in tune. Um, If you 
have, if you're looking for something to transfer merit to, things are going good for you, then let me suggest that um, DRBA, and particularly the uh, Berkeley Monastery, has been affected by natural disasters in the last week. One I just mentioned, the Santa Cruz Bonnie Dune fire, known as a Lockheed fire. Um, that's seven miles from our cottage at, in Highway 9 in Boulder Creek. If the wind should kick up, and it doesn't look like it will, the fire's 30% controlled right now, but should it kick up, we're in danger down there. Um, and that doesn't mean that you only pray when things are troubling you, because there's thousand people. I heard two thousand people have been ordered to evacuate. So, should you want to transfer merit, that would be really helpful. That. The early fires, these are the first fires of the season. There's going to be more months of fire in California. Um, that'd be a good place to transfer merit. The other news that we've been watching is um, <laughs> so strange. Um, our monastery down in southern Taiwan, in Kaohsiung, is in a place called Liugui. And Liugui is... Liu Gui is smaller than Milpitas. It's half as big as Milpitas. Liu Gui is like, we don't have any town that size around here. Maybe Hercules or something like that. Or, mm, what, mm, Saratoga. Okay, something like that. And Liu Gui is the byline in every paper in the world. All, somehow the hurricane that went through Taiwan recently smashed our little town, the bridges there. And uh, it was very dramatic what happened. And it was in some danger of being flooded and swallowed up. Hasn't happened yet, but um, so amazing to pick up the New York Times and see Liu Gui, Taiwan, and Qishan talking about these towns that have been part of my life since 1989. And they're so small and so hard to get to and so forgotten. And yet they're front page news in the New York Times. It's astounding. So, disasters of fire, Bonnie Dune, floods, Liu Gui. If you would like to transfer merit to pacify nature, please, uh, those are two places that could use your transference for sure. Peace with hearts of goodness, do
As we mentioned, uh, tomorrow morning we're on our way to Oregon to Buddha Root Farm, also known as Turtle Mountain, and we'll be back next Saturday. In the meanwhile, um, Michael will be here watching the door, taking care of things, and Dashing Pasher and I will both be going up to. Oregon, uh, Jin Yong sure will be there, and uh, also Hang Yin sure and Jin Ro sure will also be there. So there's a lot of Sangha members as well as the two monks who were there full time. There's going to be about uh, 50 participants in our our Berkeley Monastery Buddha Root Farm Week. So I'm looking forward to that a lot. It's always inspiring. And what I'm going to be doing in particular is uh, I remember what what I was impressed with last time. that um, we're busy in the project of bringing Buddha Dharma to the West. It's easy to think when you go to something like uh, the big Buddhist forum in Wuxi, where I was this March, the Chinese government spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to... Uh, put on a good show. And by golly, they did. It was a really good show. It was like the Olympics for Buddhism. No exaggeration. It was just uh, splendid. Big, big. With multimedia and 600 vocalists singing the name of the Buddha. Chinese style. The scale of China is beyond imagination. 
we are going to be in tents under trees. Not even a million. <laughs> Not even a hundred. You know, it's like we're closer to, you know, dozens of dollars will be spent to do our weekend. Literally dozens of dollars, you know. going to be, uh, my big question is, should I plug in my guitar or should I play it without electricity? That's the, the kind of question, you know. Um, how much the more the songs that we're going to, you know, things like that. So my point is, Buddhism in America is still really on the ground. We're just right down there on the basics. and But when I come back from from Oregon, I always have this um, awareness that something's really happening. Something's different when it's done, which is people's minds, people's hearts have opened to insight that wasn't there before. The only reason why is because we take the sutras, in this case it'll be the Sharangama, we take the sutras and open them up and focus on those. Focus on the sutra. Not on anything that plugs in because there's nothing to plug in. There's no phone out there, how much less internet. Um, but because we look at the sutras, we come away, and because we have the just nature, the bushes, the trees, the wind, the stars, the good food, the Smith River, because this is what we have to fill our eyes and ears. The Dharma goes in. Dharma hits your heart and you see it fresh. That's significant. Just that by itself is important. And so I want to go this time knowing that that's what we're going to encounter and uh, make it significant. This is the Buddha Dharma coming to the West. It's going to be in English. And uh, we get a chance to really look at it fresh. And it's really raw. It's really crude. Uh, but it's real. you know. And people change their perspective. They see things different after hearing the, the sutras under the under the spruce trees. So I really appreciate that and, and it makes um, it makes the uh, the words we say uh, resonate more. So I'm really looking forward to getting uh, getting the basics, hitting the, the real uh, rebar and Two by fours of of the sutra, bringing those out. So people tend to be really sincere up there. I remember uh, two two years ago, not to tell a story, and Guo Hua isn't here, so I shouldn't talk without her being here. But I'll tell a story about Guo Hua. Right? Guo Hua went to uh, Oregon two years ago, thinking that she couldn't meditate. She was convinced that she couldn't meditate. She, is, she recites sutras, she memorizes sutras, she does all the ceremonies, but 
in her mind, it wasn't real because it wasn't meditation. And, or meditation was something unreachable for her. And she, uh, given her choice, she will always serve. She always goes right for the kitchen to, to help everybody else. Well, people, the young people said, get out of the kitchen, go meditate. And the, the kitchen is down below and the meditation hall is up the hill. So you have to, if you're in one place, you're not in the other. So Goha said, okay. So she went up to meditate. And she tried it the first day. Her legs hurt, but she got chased out of the kitchen, so she tried it again. By the third day, her legs stopped hurting. By the fourth day, you couldn't get her out of the meditation hall. She was there all day long. Everybody else was out taking a walk. She was in there meditating. And by in the last day when we had the, you know, what happened to you kind of stories, she said, I learned that I can meditate. You know, and everybody's going, yay, go on. How wonderful that she actually got through the, that gate and now knows that she can meditate. So uh, we're going to make sure that she doesn't go in the kitchen again and, and that she gets a chance to sit and to uh, use her time in the Chan Hall. So that's the kind of thing that happens in the, on the retreat. Uh, this morning we recited the Universal Door, the Puman Pin chapter from the Lotus Sutra and transferred the merit from all of the reciting that people have done on behalf of folks who lost their jobs and who are struggling because of the economic downturn. That was really rewarding. And uh, we had quite a few. Anybody count how many people we had this morning? Eighty? About eighty. Good number. Big big crowd at lunch. And uh, so that that happened. And we're encouraging people not to stop, to continue to recite the Pumanpin, Guanyin's name, transfer the merit. Um, we had we invited people to do a hundred recitations of that sutra chapter. And uh, some people did more than that. Some people did as many as they could. But today we transferred the merit and it was really satisfying. Um, so I said that we're heading towards the autumn again. Believe it or not, summer is winding up. And we'll be back in September with a full schedule of events that we have during the school year. So pay attention to berkeleymonastery.org. Um, right now it's still just the same. It hasn't changed, but there's, I'm uh, going to be renovating that website and trying to put all of our events onto that site. All of the, uh, the different lectures that I give, including San Jose Gold Sage, will be on there and my schedule so you know where I am. And uh, so berkeleymonastery.org. If you go tonight, nothing will be different. It's the same as it's been. But when I'm back, we're going to update that site and have it be a vital and living uh, information center about what's going on here. So. Okay. Thank all of those folks who joined us from online and do tune in. If for any reason I don't make it back 
by uh, 6.30 next Saturday because we're going to start Saturday morning heading south. Marty will be here to lecture, but I hope to be back in time. Definitely there will be a lecture next week for sure. And uh, so we'll see you then. Um, I wanted to also invite you to visit um, Dharma Forest, my blog, because I'm going to be... I got some news, which is I'm giving a program at the Parliament of World's Religions in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I'll be doing actually two programs, but one that I proposed got accepted, and it's called Vegetarian Eating for the YouTube Generation. Vegetarian Eating for the YouTube Generation. I'm going to uh, go through and going to give an hour presentation on all the new ways of presenting information about harmless eating, including, I was an American beef cow, you can bet that I would be mad too, which is online, you can find that, including the Metrix. Did everybody see the Metrix? Do you know that one? Go out and type the Metrix movie into uh, Google. It's a short five-minute video produced right here in Berkeley by a group called Free Range Studios. And uh, it talks about factory farming and it uses the Matrix, the movie, as the, the spoof to tell the story. Um, so I'm going to go through and pick out all the wonderful new ways to talk about healthful, compassionate eating that appear online. And including um, text articles. I got a bunch here that talk about global warming, saying that cows are really worse than cars. It's true. According to who? The UN. The UN research says that if you can eat less meat, that is to say one meal, give up red meat, one meal per week, if everybody reduced meat consumption by 10%, automatically they would reduce greenhouse gases to the same amount as if everybody stopped driving. Right? So in other words, rearing cattle produces more greenhouse gases than driving cars. Everybody thinks internal combustion engine, buses, trucks, your car, clunkers, cash for clunkers, are the real problem. Sending out these gases that cut through the ozone that, that makes the sun come in more, that melts the ice caps, and, you know, trouble, causes forest fires. In fact, it's meat. And what comes out of cows, both ends of cows, belching of cows produces greenhouse gases, as do methane from, from cow manure and pig manure. So who knew, right? We think, what does my diet have to do with global warming? Everything, if you're still eating meat. So this is fact, and I've got these incredible articles. The UN News Service, talking about that, that those findings that they've got that are absolute hard science. And... Uh, if you would switch to a vegan diet, 
you'd have a bigger impact than trading in your gas guzzler for a Prius. True. True. So I'm going to put all that stuff into a presentation. And uh, that's, that's what I found out this week, that I'll be presenting that in Australia. So, very subversive. Hitting our culture right where it hurts, which is at the dinner plate. Boy, if, um, what do they say, the biggest problem about health care, I heard our president say it's the conflict between hope and fear. Health care, when people tried to institute Medicare and Medicaid, which is in Medi-Cal, the very same things were said. The very same hysteria, because why? Change is scary. So now we've got all this incredible reaction against health care reform, which we need. Uh, I don't have any health insurance. I would love to have health insurance, but I can't afford it. You know, Guanyin Bodhisattva is my health insurance. You know, knock on wood. So, um, the president said it's hope versus fear. And there's all this fear about change. Imagine if they put in health care bill that people had to eat plants one day a week. Can you imagine the outcry? That would be so dangerous. Because we, why? We're addicted to meat. Right? So imagine if that was one of the, the aspects of health care, that everybody had to pick any day you want, but one day a week you have to eat plants. Doesn't matter which day. Your choice. We'd have Republicans in the White House before you know it. But that would be the end of the Democrats. They don't dare. Uh, never mind. That's can't hope for everything. This is a world of karmic consumption. We eat each other in this world. That's what we do. Uh, so it goes. All right. Go one step at a time. So have a week full of wisdom and compassion. You might consider taking a completely vegetarian day, one day a week, if you're not full-time already. All right? See you in a week. If you don't go to Oregon, please uh, keep that recitation of Guanyin's name going because that forest fire is not out yet. See you next Saturday.